Hey everybody, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan from Bucks County Community College, just outside of Philadelphia. Uh, so we're going to be discussing the next um, the next uh, topic in nerve tissue, and that is going to be the changes in membrane potential or electrical potential uh, on the membrane of a neuron. So we discussed in the previous episode the uh, idea of what the nervous system's job is and how it performs that job by conducting electrical signals. And now we're going to talk about where those electrical signals come from and how we measure them and what they do. So um, uh, again, uh, thanks for your uh, listenership. I really appreciate those of you who've been listening and those of you who have been um, reaching out and sending me emails and asking me questions. Um, I've gotten some really good questions from some of you, so uh, I really do like hearing those and seeing that. One of the questions I received recently was from a student uh, named Melanie, who is in upstate New York, and she is a pre-nursing student, and she asked me about dendrites and neuron cell bodies and about receiving nerve transmissions. Specifically, she was asking about um, when, a, when a neuron is stimulated by another neuron, is it only receiving that stimulation at the dendrites? And the answer is actually no. Um, dendrites aren't the only parts of the neuron that can receive uh, stimulation from another neuron. The actual cell bodies, sometimes the um, the axon terminals of a of a presynaptic neuron. This is getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Can stimulate the cell body, not just a dendrite, and and transmit its signal to the cell body. So that's a good question. I think I might have failed to mention that in the previous episode. That it's not just the dendrites that can receive nerve transmission. It's also the 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 uh, neuron's cell body that can receive it. So good question, Melanie. Thanks for asking that question. Keep those questions coming. So what we need to discuss is how this is happening in the plasma membrane of a neuron. So today's episode is going to specifically cover membrane potential, whether it's resting, local, or action. So let's get started. Okay, so the first thing we have to really remember from way back in earlier episodes is the plasma membrane of an animal cell. And that plasma membrane is made up of phospholipids and proteins, among some other things. But some of those proteins are channel proteins, which means sometimes they're ion channels, like sodium ion channels or potassium ion channels. And without those channels open those ions can't cross the membrane. The membrane is impermeable to charged particles like ions. So the buildup of negative ions or anions on the inside of the cell versus the buildup of positive ions or cations on the outside of the cell creates this electrical difference, this gradient, electrochemical gradient across that membrane. 
And that is called the membrane potential or the resting membrane potential in a cell that is not active at the moment. So we have this difference in positive ions and negative ions on either side of the membrane. And that's kind of like a tension that exists there because um, these charges, positive charges and negative charges, they really want to kind of get together. They, they're attracted to one another. So they're, they're, they're hugging opposite sides of that phospholipid bilayer because they can't get through it. So they're, they're kind of creating this tension across that layer that is a potential for something to happen, right? If we were able to open up a channel that allowed these ions to move across the membrane, then they would. And that would happen, but they don't. So it's a potential. It's a, it's a potential for something to happen. So I like to think of it in that way. And we call that the electrical potential or the membrane potential. And when the neurons at rest, we call it the resting membrane potential. And the charges are built up in such a way that we can actually measure them. So we can measure the charges and what we come up with is a measurement of 70 millivolts. So we measure these charges in volts. So we have this 70 millivolt difference. And since there's more negative ions on the inside of the cell than on the outside of the cell, that we end up calling it negative 70 millivolts. And that's what we measure the resting membrane potential of a neuron as, as negative 70 millivolts. And since there is a difference in charge on either side of the membrane, we consider the membrane to be what's called polarized. So think of poles. Poles means that there's opposite ends of something, like a magnet has poles, a north and a south, or a battery has poles, a negative and a positive. So the membrane has poles. A charged membrane like this has poles. And so we call it, because there's it's opposite on both sides, we call it polarized. So keep that in mind, that we have a resting membrane potential, we have a polarized membrane. That's an important thing to remember. Now, those ion channels I mentioned, those membrane proteins that are channel proteins, there's three kinds of ion channels I want to talk about. Because these ion channels, they have gates that close them so that the ions can't move across. And there are stimuli that can open those gates. And there are three classes of stimuli that can open gated ion channels. And those classes are mechanical, ligand or chemical, and voltage. So we have ligand gated, mechanically gated, and voltage gated ion channels. And there are stimuli that can open those. For an example, a mechanically gated ion channel might be opened by pressure. So you might have a, um, a sensory receptor on your fingertip. And when you touch something, you feel the pressure of whatever you're touching. That pressure opened up a mechanically gated ion channel. And that let ions flow in and resulted in a nerve signal that went to your brain so that you can perceive that pressure. So that's a mechanically gated ion channel. We also have ligand gated, which means a chemical stimulus might open them. Um, 
And then voltage-gated, meaning that an electrical stimulus opened those. And that electrical stimulus is going to be a change in that membrane potential, that electrical potential. But let's start with a mechanically-gated ion channel. Because a mechanically-gated ion channel is um, in, a, in a specific local region of a plasma, mem plasma membrane. If we had a mechanical stimulus like temperature or pressure, and that opened up a sodium ion channel, a mechanically gated sodium ion channel in a region, then what's going to happen is sodium is going to flow down its concentration gradient. Now, sodium ions are in much higher concentration outside the cell in the extracellular fluid than they are inside the cell, in the cytosol. So, when you open that sodium ion channel, naturally, by simple diffusion, ions will flow down their concentration gradient. The net movement of ions will be in the direction of the lower concentration, which is inside the cell. So, now those sodium ions are positively charged. So, we're not only adding sodium to the inside of the cell, but we're adding positive charges to the inside of the cell which means we are now changing that electrochemical gradient that we had, and it's no longer going to be minus 70 millivolts because we're adding positive ions to it. So that membrane potential that we had earlier at minus 70 is going to start moving closer to zero because we're adding positives to this negative situation. So now we've no longer... Now we're no longer in resting membrane potential, because we've opened up an ion channel, we are now, we have now changed the electrical potential of that piece of the membrane in that area. So we call that a local potential. That local potential means that there is a change in membrane potential locally, only in that region of the membrane, that small area where that mechanically gated ion channel was. And that membrane potential is now starting to move closer to zero. It's becoming less polar than it was before. Because if the membrane potential was zero, that would mean that there were equal charges on either side. And that would mean that the, that the membrane is no longer polarized. So what we say here is happening is that we are depolarizing the membrane. So where that phrase comes from that you may have heard before, depolarizing the membrane, that phrase comes from the idea that you're making the membrane less polar because you're moving it towards zero from minus 70. That is called a local potential. Sometimes they call them a graded potential because they are going to be uh, based on how much how much ion moves. So how big this local potential is is determined by how many of the ion channels you open and for how long they're open, right? So it could be a, could be a large shift in potential, could be a small shift in potential. It could be that you've opened up an ion channel that allows negative ions in and the membrane becomes more negative or hyperpolarized, even more polarized than it was before. So we call that a hyperpolarized membrane.
Okay, so we have this local potential. Now, another thing that can cause a local potential would be a chemically gated ion channel, or also known as a ligand or ligand gated ion channel. And that would mean that a chemical messenger comes by and stimulates the ion channel, and that ion channel opens and allows ions to flow through. Now, ion channels are typically specific to a particular ion. So you have sodium ion channels and potassium ion channels and chloride ion channels and calcium ion channels, etc. So those are the options that you have with ion channels. So if you um, have a ligand or a, um, a chemical messenger like, an, like a neurotransmitter, like acetylcholine, for example, you could stimulate the opening of ion channels that are ligand-gated. And those will allow ions in as well. And they also, they also result in a local potential. That local potential is just in that area. And it is proportional to how many ion channels have been opened and for how long they remained open. Okay, so now you have these local potentials. And there was a third, don't forget, there was a third type of, of ion channel that we mentioned, of gated, uh, gated ion channel, and that was voltage-gated. So now it's not too often that we come across some electrical stimulus that we're touching. We try to avoid being stimulated electrically from the outside. So when we say voltage-gated ion channels, where's that voltage coming from? Well, it's coming from the membrane potential itself. Changes in membrane potential can open voltage-gated ion channels. So, we have two different membrane proteins, two different gates that result in local potentials. Those are mechanically and ligand-gated ion channels. Now we have these voltage-gated ion channels, and they're sitting there too. If the membrane potential changes so much that it goes from minus 70 millivolts up to minus 55 millivolts, then that stimulus in a neuron will open the voltage-gated ion channels. We call that threshold. Minus 55 millivolts is, is the threshold for opening voltage-gated ion channels in neurons. Notice that at the end of my podcast episodes, I say this has been a production of minus 55 media. That's where I got that name from. So <clears throat> minus 55 is when the action happens in the nervous system. So if that local potential is great enough to depolarize the membrane, which means bring it closer to zero, to depolarize the membrane enough to get to minus 55 millivolts, then that stimulates the opening of voltage-gated ion channels in that area. Now here's the thing. Mechanical-gated ion channels and ligand-gated ion channels, they're local. When they allow the membrane to depolarize, that doesn't cause the opening of more mechanically-gated ion channels. You need more mechanical stimulus for that. Same thing with ligand. You need more chemicals to open more ion channels. But with voltage-gated ion channels, what you have 
is you increase the voltage of the membrane by opening voltage-gated ion channels. So the voltage-gated ion channels open. More sodium rushes in. These are voltage-gated sodium ion channels. More sodium rushes in. These are positive ions. They depolarize the membrane even more. And that will stimulate the opening of any voltage-gated ion channels anywhere near it. So more of them open. And then they just keep opening like dominoes falling. So you tip the first domino, and it keeps knocking over all the dominoes in its area. And that's kind of what happens when voltage-gated ion channels open. Right? So now we have what's called an action potential. So we had a local potential from mechanical-gated and ligand-gated ion channels. And now we have an action potential which is stimulated by the opening of voltage-gated ion channels. And the reason why it's called an action potential is because it can stimulate the opening of more voltage-gated ion channels in the area, and there's really no way to stop it. So if you reach, if you reach threshold and open voltage-gated ion channels, you will depolarize the membrane and stimulate the depolarization of the membrane adjacent to it like dominoes falling in a row. So action potentials, they're not local. They are going to trigger action potentials in every piece of the membrane all the way down to the end of the axon. The other thing is they're not variable. Every time when you open up voltage-gated ion channels, sodium ion channels, they open enough that the membrane depolarizes, becomes less negative, goes all the way to zero, shoots past zero, and goes all the way up to plus 30 millivolts. At that point, sodium ion channels close, but potassium ion channels that also opened remain open. And since potassium ions are in higher concentration inside the cell than they are out, Potassium ions, which are also positive, they're leaving the cell. And that causes that plus 30 to start coming back down, back toward zero. So we had a rapid depolarization of the membrane, shot up from minus 55 all the way to plus 30 really fast from the opening of voltage-gated sodium ion channels. We call that the rapid depolarization phase of the action potential. Then it hits plus 30 or so, plus 30, plus 35, somewhere in that area. That causes sodium ion channels to close, so sodium ions are no longer rushing into the cell, and potassium ion channels to remain open. So, so, so potassium ions, also positively charged, are leaving the cell. So when we, when, we get, when we have the positive ions leaving, we bring the membrane potential back down. That's called repolarization. We go rapid depolarization, then repolarization. And that will pull it back down toward zero, past zero, back to minus 70 millivolts, and then even a little bit lower than minus 70 millivolts. So we go even below resting membrane potential with these potassium ions. And we call that hyperpolarization. Hyperpolarization is there because there's a little bit of what we call a refractory period. The reason why the potassium ions pull it down 
below minus 70 is because what we want is we want that piece of the membrane that just had this action potential, we want it to be below 70 so that it's not able to be stimulated right away. And what that does is that makes sure that the when the we tip those dominoes of action potentials, that we don't tip them backwards. We don't want to stimulate the membrane proximal to another action potential. We only want to keep stimulating the membrane pieces of the axon distally toward the axon terminals. So we, we want it to be a row of dominoes all falling in the same direction rather than um, throwing a ping pong ball into a room full of mousetraps. And then you have just random random firing of mousetraps all over the place that you can't control. We want a controlled flow of falling dominoes. That's what we want our nerve signal to be. So an action potential takes place in one isolated piece of the membrane. But the fact that it stimulates an action potential in the next piece, which then stimulates it in the next piece, and the next piece, and so on, 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 all the way to the end of the axon terminals, that's called a nerve signal. So the nerve signal is the succession of action potentials down the line of the axon, like falling dominoes, all the way to the end. And we call those, ax those action potentials all or none, meaning they either go up to plus 30 or they don't do anything at all. There's no graded piece of those potentials. Okay, so then once we get to the end of the axon terminal, something has to happen. We need to, we're stimulating something with this nerve signal. So it could be that we are stimulating a muscle cell to contract, or we're stimulating another neuron to, to transmit that nerve signal to keep going. Right? So when you have a sensation, for example, you touch something with your fingertip, that has to stimulate a neuron to take to carry a nerve signal to your spinal cord, and then it has to transmit that nerve signal to a neuron in your spinal cord to travel up towards your brain so that we can perceive that sensation. And, um, and so we call that a synapse when a neuron is communicating or transmitting its signal to another neuron, we call that a synapse. And um, we use chemicals in most of these synapses called neurotransmitters. So remember I said in the previous episode that our nervous system is not like, it's not like plugging in your toaster where two electrodes touch each other and that's how we get the electricity to transmit from wire to wire. Rather, we have a small space between the first neuron and the second neuron. And that communication between those two neurons is called a synapse. S-Y-N-A-P-S-E. Synapse. The little space between the neurons, between the axon terminals of neuron 1 and the dendrites or cell body of neuron 2, is called the synaptic cleft. This type of communication is called a chemical synapse because neuron number one, what we call the presynaptic neuron, will release a chemical into that synaptic cleft. And that chemical is called a neurotransmitter. Examples would be epinephrine, 
acetylcholine, serotonin, dopamine. You've probably heard of a lot of these. We release that neurotransmitter because it transmits the nerve signal, neurotransmitter. We release that neurotransmitter through exocytosis, right? We have a, we have a vesicle, right? They're, they're contained inside vesicles, and those vesicles break open at the plasma membrane and release them into the extracellular fluid. That's exocytosis. You can review some of my previous episodes early on on membrane transport. And that will explain exocytosis again. And, um, and then that neurotransmitter becomes a ligand for ligand-gated ion channels in the postsynaptic neuron, neuron number two, the one that's receiving the nerve, tra- nerve signal. So here's what happens. The nerve signal comes down the axon terminal. And when it gets to this synaptic end bulb or synaptic knob, that end piece... It stimulates the opening of voltage-gated calcium ion channels. Now, calcium ions are in greater concentration outside the cell than they are inside. So when the channels open, calcium ions rush into the cell, down their concentration gradient, and they stimulate the exocytosis of these synaptic vesicles, these vesicles that have neurotransmitter in them. Those, that neurotransmitter is released into the synaptic cleft. It diffuses across the cleft in the extracellular fluid and stimulates ligand-gated sodium ion channels on the opposite side of the membrane. So, or I'm sorry, on the opposite side of the synaptic cleft. So in that postsynaptic neuron's membrane, postsynaptic membrane, ligand-gated ion channels are opened and sodium ions will flow down their concentration into that, that postsynaptic neuron and depolarize its membrane with a local potential. And then if that local potential reaches threshold at minus 55 millivolts, it'll stimulate the opening of voltage-gated ion channels, and the whole thing starts over again. And then what we've, what we've basically done is take neuron number one and... Start the whole process in neuron number two, using a local potential and having that reach an an action potential and that turning into a nerve signal. And that's how we transmit that. That's called a chemical synapse. Now, the the possibilities that you can get in neuron number two are you can release enough neurotransmitter that you depolarize the membrane in neuron number two, the postsynaptic membrane. If you depolarize it enough, to minus 55 millivolts, you get an action potential or you get it and, and that becomes a nerve signal. Now, that requires a depolarization of that postsynaptic membrane, the membrane on the other side of the synapse. We call that an excitatory postsynaptic membrane or an excitatory, I'm sorry, an excitatory postsynaptic potential, EPSP. If that EPSP is large enough, or if we get enough EPSPs coming right after each other, then eventually it will depolarize the membrane enough to reach minus 55 millivolts, which is threshold, and stimulate the opening of voltage-gated sodium ion channels and transmit the nerve signal. Or 
that neurotransmitter could stimulate the opening of a different kind of ion channel, a ligand-gated potassium ion channel, which causes potassium ions to leave the cell and hyperpolarize the membrane. So what if we took that, that, neuro, that second neuron's membrane and pulled it further from threshold so it doesn't transmit the nerve signal, so it doesn't stimulate an action potential? That is called an inhibitory postsynaptic potential, or IPSP. And that's also something really important because sometimes neuron one's job is to make sure that there is no nerve signal in neuron number two. So we have some great examples of this. We have reflexes in our muscles that specifically turn our muscles off to protect them from over-contracting, right? So for that, we would need an inhibitory postsynaptic potential generated, an IPSP. We want to pull that neuron further or that muscle cell further from threshold. We don't want that to fire off another, another, another action potential. So we use an IPSP. So the two possible membrane potentials that we can generate in our postsynaptic membrane from a nerve signal's chemical synapse is an excitatory postsynaptic potential, make it closer to threshold. Do we excite the membrane? It's like we're pushing, we're pushing the ball just a little closer to the edge before it falls off the table. Or we can use an inhibitory postsynaptic potential, an IPSP, where we, we pull that ball further from the edge so we make sure it doesn't fall. Those are our choices, EPSP or IPSP. Now, we have different ways to reaching that threshold, right? So one EPSP from one release of neurotransmitter is not going to be enough to change the membrane potential in the postsynaptic membrane enough to trigger an action potential or to reach threshold. So we can do a couple things. We can, we can have a bunch of nerve signals happening one right after the other that keep hitting that postsynaptic potential over and over and over again so that it, 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 it causes it to rise up incrementally toward threshold until it eventually reaches it. We call that, uh, we call that temporal summation. And that means that over time, multiple EPSPs are generated and the membrane never has time to kind of fall back to membrane to resting in between and we eventually reach threshold doing that. Or we can have multiple presynaptic neurons all stimulating the postsynaptic neuron at the same time. So we call that spatial summation, a bunch of them happening in the same space. So the difference is kind of like, um, let's say you had a boulder that you needed to push over a hill. So you're pushing the boulder up towards the top of the hill and for every five feet you push it up, you, you have to rest and let it roll back two more feet. So with temporal summation, you would have to push the boulder up like several times over time until you finally reached the top of the hill. 
Like you'd push it up five feet, it would fall back three. Push up another five, it falls back three. Push up another five, it falls back three until you eventually get over the hill. That would be temporal summation. Spatial summation would be where you get three of your friends to help you all push it over at one time. And you all push at the same time and eventually reach the top of the hill. That would be spatial summation. Multiple people happening at the, pushing at the same time. Multiple neurons stimulating the postsynaptic membrane at the same time. Those are the differences um, between those. And then finally, eventually those, those neurotransmitters that are in the, in the synaptic cleft, um, eventually you want them to no longer stimulate the postsynaptic neuron because you only want the postsynaptic neuron stimulated when you want it to be, when, you st when your nerve signals are generated appropriately. So those neurotransmitters are removed from the synaptic cleft, so they stop continuously stimulating their, their, um, their receptors on the other side. And so we have three different methods of neurotransmitter removal from the synaptic cleft. Uh, the first one is they just diffuse into the extracellular fluid. Uh, the another, next one would be that you have enzymes and those enzymes will uh, degrade the neurotransmitters. They'll break them down. For example, acetylcholine has an enzyme called acetylcholine esterase, which breaks acetylcholine down into acetate and choline. So it's no longer able to stimulate its receptors. And then finally, you can have the neurotransmitter being reabsorbed by the presynaptic membrane, the one that's secreted in the first place. Uh, we call that reuptake. You've probably heard of things like serotonin or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. Uh, they're actually drugs that prevent the reuptake of serotonin. So serotonin is allowed to linger in the synaptic cleft and continue to stimulate its receptors. Um, and since serotonin is kind of a mood-regulating uh, neurotransmitter, those pharmaceuticals are designed to help to regulate moods and antidepressants and things like that. So, um, so that's kind of the, the basic idea of, of membrane potential in a neuron, a nerve signal, changes in membrane potential. I mean, we really covered a lot in this episode, so it's a lot to think about. This is a good episode to re-listen to um, and really take down a lot of what, what we talked about. This is something that I normally would, if I was teaching, I'd be using a lot of visuals for something like this or even animations. So this is a tough one to just talk about and hope you get it. But hopefully this is review for you, uh, for your class, and that you are... Um, you know, really kind of trying to solidify a good understanding of this stuff. So um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll definitely cut it off there for this episode and we'll, we'll move on into the nervous system in the next episode and maybe talk more specifically about neurotransmitters and um, maybe even start getting into some applications of these things like how the spinal cord works and sensory receptors and things like that. So um, I appreciate you listening. Thank you so much for sticking with me, uh, despite the long time in between episodes that I've gotten, uh, that I've had recently. So good luck and, um, I will see you next time. Hey everyone. Don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. 
student help, the number four, AP. There's a lot of tutor videos on there that I think could be really helpful. I also have an Instagram account and a Twitter feed with the same name. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media, with a special thanks to Bucks County Community College, McGraw-Hill Higher Education, and my family.